Hello and welcome to Dialogue and Debate with Cumberland Lodge. My name's Alex Blower and I'm a Cumberland Lodge Scholar. Last week, our Dialogue and Debate webinar explored COVID-19 and the digital divide. During the conversation, our three guest panellists discussed the importance of ensuring that people have access to digital technologies and the internet, and the particular challenges and obstacles which have been raised as a result of the pandemic. If you missed this, you can find the recordings on the Read, Watch, Listen page of our website. Here you can also download our recently published report on digital inclusion, Bridging Divides. Today we will be exploring the risks of loneliness and its mental health implications for young people. Most discussions about loneliness focus on older age groups, but teenagers and young adults are also likely to experience feelings of isolation. We'll be focusing on what support is available to those at risk, especially as we navigate the new challenges brought to us as a result of the pandemic. To join us in this conversation, we're pleased to welcome three guest panellists. Dr. Fahana Mann, psychiatrist, Welcome Clinical Research Fellow at UCL and co-founder of Ketka. Kerry Starkey from UK Youth Voice and Tim Leach, CEO of the charity Wavelength. Thank you so much for joining us. Unfortunately, our fourth guest, Johnny Benjamin, can't be with us due to illness. To those watching this morning, please do get involved and submit any questions you'd like to put to our guests as we go. You can submit the questions via the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commenting on our Facebook live stream. So, without further ado, let's get started. The first question goes to Fahana. Fahana, to what extent do you feel the issue of loneliness affects young people today? Do you think it's as widely recognised or understood as loneliness amongst older people? Thanks very much for having me uh, today. I Oh, that's much better. I could hear a bit of an echo earlier, but it's gone, so that's wonderful. Um, so, in terms of to what extent, I suppose there's my overall feeling that uh, it, to a large extent is the kind of simple answer. Um, and as to numbers, we already knew before COVID uh, that it was, it was quite clear from kind of population or cross-sectional studies across populations that there was a peak, there is a notable peak in younger people, so 16 to 25, thinking about that kind of age group, so teens, young adults. Um, but And that's been seen again and again in a number of different studies where you look across populations. Um, and as you say, is it as widely recognized or understood as loneliness amongst older people? I think that's quite an easy answer, no. Uh, not that we fully understand what the mechanisms are that uh, lead to sort of older people getting lonely and what how that impacts on their health. There's a lot we need to explore in that sense, but from say systematic reviews, when we look at all of the scientific evidence that's published or not published, and we try to look at answers like does loneliness cause depression, et cetera, from, uh, so from our team at UCL, very typically, and almost always, we find the vast majority, almost all of those studies are carried out in older people, so people over 55 or over 65. So certainly a lot of the research published evidence and therefore the answers we can give with confidence comes much more uh, from older people. So I think we have a, a lot of work to do to try to, do, to, to get to that level with young people. Um, so absolutely not, not as well understood. People, so people Thank you for Hannah. Uh, the next question is for Kerry. Kerry, could you tell us about the project you're working on with UK Youth? What advice can you give for young people experiencing loneliness and for those who are worried about particular at-risk individuals who might be within their own communities? So UK Youth are working with a individual organisation which are trying to tackle loneliness. 
So we are creating a handbook of sorts for to give to youth workers to spot different things, um, symptoms, different indicators which point to someone being lonely. And we are trying to get it from a youth perspective. So we are asking for young people's stories, poems, making it all creative instead of straight just a document instead of something that can be there for a while, which is going to be helpful in the long run. And my advice for young people experiencing loneliness would be speak out. Like I've experienced loneliness myself and it's not a great thing, but in order to not feel lonely or not isolate yourself no more, you have to at least speak to someone because that one person is getting you out of your loneliness for that five minutes, 10 minutes, however long you speak. And if you're worried about someone at risk of within their community, speak out, go to the houses, go and see the person, even if it's a two meter distance, get them to the door, get them to see the outside world. And at least then they have had some interaction with someone if they're not gonna have it at all. That's fantastic, Kerry. Thank you. And really interesting. Um, On to Tim. Tim, how can we harness the opportunities for digital technology to increase a sense of belonging amongst young people? Um, I think it's interesting. A lot of those answers are there within the younger population anyway. Um, The use of technology, they are developing with it. I think number one, um, if we just go to loneliness around youth, in the beginning, I, I have to say, if you want to solve loneliness for older people, you've got to start with skilling young young people with the skills to tackle loneliness to begin with. And I think at the moment, we have to challenge a lot of the digital divide and where government is on funding internet and internet provision, um, cheap data and cellular. If you look at Ofcom reports, they're saying that actually people are spending more money on their mobile phones because they want to have contact with people and they are food. So it's pushing them into debt. So there's a a lot of equality issues there and access issues. Um, I think what we've got out of COVID, that there's less of this panic about social media and there's less pressure on young people in terms of peer pressure, um, which has created an interesting situation um, and I think what I would be talking to young people about is one of the things is start measuring your loneliness. Look where you are. Look at what is causing that for you. Um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that culturally it's different in different cult- cultures. Um, population density could have a lot to play with it and how, how people relate to that. Um, how family dispersal has happened, all those different things can have a real impact on, on young people. But the, the, the main thing is actually access to that kit and having those opportunities available. And also then knowing that you need to balance the digital interventions, whether that be FaceTime, Zoom, et cetera, with other things. So, you know, COVID has shown us that just having Zoom is not good enough. You actually physically need to go out and see people. Um, so young people have got to do that. They've got to understand actually other therapeutic approaches such as access to nature and green spaces is very beneficial. Um, time to wind down, things like yoga, um, meditation, 
exercise, all the things we have been driven to and hobbies as well, um, can be integrated with those digital platforms and followed and there are societies and groups you can then join. And I think then it's about whether they can master, I think where we are in terms of governments and social issues at the moment is that actually we found government civil service and you know, our MPs and politicians fairly wanting and unnecessary at the moment. And I think that citizen's action is very, very important to young people and how they're going to develop. And if they can keep hold of that, I think there's great opportunities for them. Um, and I think the ones I probably worry about most of all are the, the people who are endemically lonely. I think we know there are different classes of loneliness and there seems to be people cradle to grave. And I'm worried that people may be forgotten after the COVID-19 outbreak. But I have also been hearing a lot of people saying, look, I was like this before. Things have come more towards me than away from me. And actually it's been a good thing. So I think there's positives there. I think looking at that and looking at where we are with the national curriculum and some of the new policies coming in and embedding those and loneliness being part of what we need to get there um, and the strategies to combat it has to be part of where we go. But I think measuring and being aware of your loneliness and not afraid of that and knowing that it's a natural part of your daily life um, is really important to young people. And those positive messages about it, uh, along with the technology being there to do those things, I think are, are the opportunities to grab. Sorry, that's a bit long-winded. Now, there was um, a really interesting point that you made there, Tim, with regards to the, the national curriculum and kind of embedding uh, some of the work around loneliness into perhaps the more formal education structures. Would you mind just elaborating a little bit on how that could potentially... Well, well yeah, I think... Um, we're looking at citizenship in, in national curriculum now, and loneliness is part of those, those life skills. And I think this, we have a debate, who's lonelier, younger or older people? And I think that's pretty false. We, we have a longevity within our lifespan, and therefore we should be worried about what's happening with children, um, you know, because that's where the experience of life comes from later. And, Therefore, it is, if loneliness is being, going to be seen really as, as important as it actually is, it could be a trigger to anxiety, which can be a trigger to depression, a trigger to lots of other things. We need to tackle that. So you need to take um, a national approach to that. And one of the places where children are definitely, most of the time, nationally committed is within schools. So why not put it in the curriculum? It is actually there, and it should link and it should link into the health service as well. Um, you know, I'm sure Farhan will have a, a, a view on that, but yeah, yeah. I, I think that opportunity is already there. We just got to press the button. I wonder if I could, if it's all right, Alex, I can just follow on from that. I totally agree. I think I'm, I think the one thing I take away from, not one thing, there's so many things, but from being in psychiatry now for sort of 15 years in the NHS is that, that there is so much scope to do more earlier on in a sort of preventive, proactive way that doesn't require, you know, you don't require psychiatrists going into schools or anything like that. You're not necessarily dealing with illness, but supporting young families long before the peaks that we're talking about. So that it's a normal part of your life to think about learning social skills, to think about how to tackle 
friendships or, or things like we know bullying, for example, is associated with being lonely and having mental health problems later on. So really being much more proactive, not to say it's the down to the little kids to deal with it themselves, but just that let's equip kids with things from early on. And that's part of um, in my other sort of work with Ketka is that actually what we're doing is developing a tech product for schools. Um, and we have a grant that allows us to take it to sort of more deprived, economically deprived parts of the country so they can access this using tech to sort of explore themes like friendships, loneliness, how do you deal with it if you're angry, how do you manage it when you get stressed, who might you talk to? So I totally agree. I think we have to start much earlier, long before the stats and the spikes appear. Fantastic, thank you, Pana. Um, and just kind of from your research background, it's primarily kind of psychological. I was just wondering, from your perspective, are there certain personality types that you would say are more at risk than others when it comes to loneliness? And can an awareness of our own personality traits perhaps be an important step in mitigating some of the loneliness and its effects? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that's important is when we're looking at loneliness, uh, there was a sort of diagram we did in a paper once about sort of levels of uh, intervention and, and how you can help people. And one of those levels is sort of at a much wider sort of government, so wider society, things like transport links, you know, that sort of stuff, public education. Then there's a more sort of community level and then there's a level also of the individual. So I don't think it'll ever be a case of us purely looking at psychological mechanisms in an individual and that will help you, but it's one way to look at things. Um, in terms of personality types, so I don't personally explore that that much, um, but there are certainly certain things that come out from, from what I've read in, in the research. I know there was a meta-analysis where you put together all the studies you can find and then try to come up with a sort of quantifiable answer as to how does personality interact with loneliness or your likelihood of being lonely. And if people are familiar with the kind of typical big five personality types, you may or may not be, but they're, 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 they're out on Google. There are different aspects of personality people look at. And the one thing that seems to come out is that people, and this word might not sit well with people, but it just means it's called neuroticism, but it's just about sort of sort of being more emotional, more likely to have mood mood issues or anxiety or stress and the mood is, is a little bit more unstable. So in that personality group, there seems to be a more, much more consistent, higher risk of being lonely. So that link with um, how you manage mood or how, how, you know, again, it's hard to say that the loneliness early on in life didn't maybe predispose you to, to, to maintain that personality or that it's the other way around. And because you have these aspects of your personality that it then interferes with how you respond in a social setting. But we know that at least some, that both of those things are probably true, but we know that in terms of the latter, so how a person interacts with other people, um, that your personality can certainly come into that. So for example, there are studies that show if you are someone who maybe is prone to being a bit depressed or your self-worth is lower, or you go into a scenario and you're meeting a load of people, but you go in thinking, I'm not gonna be very interesting, people are not gonna be that interested in talking to me, then any, any data that you get or any feedback you get from people will you will use to sort of reinforce that and be like, oh, well, he looked away while I was speaking. That means I am not interesting. I'm not going to bother with interactions in future. And so in that way, I think those kinds of thought processes are important to think about and work with. 
although you have to think about what context that person is then placed into. So, so yeah, in terms of personality and eroticism, in terms of other risk factors, certainly uh, thinking more in terms of what we see in psychiatry. So people who would be classed as having a personality disorder, for example, or severe mental illness, things like schizophrenia or bipolar, people that we will work with um, in clinics and hospitals um, are much more at risk in many settings of being both socially isolated um, and for many of them being lonely. So in that sense, there's more to learn about how is perhaps things like internalized stigma or how if you hear voices or you struggle with something quite severe in terms of mental health problems, how do you then interact with other people in society and what are your internalized views about how they're responding to you? So I think those are all different mechanisms and different ways that we can work with individuals um, to think psychologically about how that their behaviors or their thoughts might be made, making the situation worse or maintaining it, for example. So I hope that's helpful. Alex, could I pose a question in a slightly different way, um, which is, does loneliness lead to personality traits? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> because um, I just wonder if, you know, loneliness is still really in its infancy um, in terms of understanding where we're going with it. And a lot of the time we're giving importance to loneliness by trying to attach it to different conditions. Maybe actually it's a a motive to those conditions and it's like a lot of our other base motives you know um, loneliness is about social bonding and making us want to bond with other people which is a very natural thing if you're a community-based animal um, and what i'm seeing is probably different four different levels of loneliness at the basis of our research and those seem to tip over from one stage to another where it comes out of control and I think the similarities with anxiety are big, but I think anxiety comes after, almost comes after loneliness. Loneliness can be a trigger to that as well. And my concern at the moment in COVID-19 is that there doesn't seem to be a general progression from one state to another. People are going from low levels to high, mm -hmm. and those can be in a mental health indicator. Yeah, I would, sorry, I, I don't know if that, if I carry on. Um, so I agree. So, so part of what, what I'm also looking at and what we're looking at is, is this sort of directionality type thing or, you know, and this seems that one of the things people often say is, is I know if I'll talk about loneliness to a group of people, it'll be said, well, that sounds a lot like depression. Isn't that just depression or isn't that, that sounds like anxiety. And in fact, if you look at the scales that we use in research often, so for example, CESD, which is kind of very popular depression scale, one of the questions in it is I feel lonely. So it's kind of, so it's very intuitively, it makes a lot of sense that these two things aren't totally separate. Um, so people have studied it, trying to sort of tease apart how do the questions we ask that we consider depression and how do the questions we ask you looking at a loneliness scale although they have their own problems that's a whole other um conversation probably but they don't but they they cross over in certain ways but they tend to only cross over over for example that question i feel lonely so there still seem to be things that aren't you know it doesn't mean because you're depressed you are lonely and it's the same thing so it's worthy of its own kind of exploration uh, so that's where we're at also, I agree that there is this sort of what we've seen is there's a degree of kind of reciprocity. So it's sort of reciprocal relationship that if you're lonely, it does look like, again, predominantly from studies of older people, because that's what we have so far, um, that it does seem to be over time. If you follow people up that you are, if you didn't have depression already, more likely to get it. But also that if you have an existing mental health problem over time, you are more likely to get 
to experience loneliness and social isolation, different things um, over time. So, so, so it's kind of, they're not the same thing, they're connected, but, and, and that they may be working in both ways. That's fantastic. Thank you, Fana um, and Tim. Really interesting discussion. Um, Kerry, I'd just like to bring you in, if it's okay. Something that Fana mentioned there was was the idea, and there was the word stigma, um, particularly from kind of your work with UK youth and your own personal experiences. Do you feel that there is a stigma, perhaps attached to loneliness, in the same way as it might be, um, you know, with particular mental health conditions? Yes, yeah, certainly. So I didn't know myself that loneliness was on its own. I thought it was always functioning with mental health, depression, anxiety. So learning about loneliness as a whole topic now and now it's coming to light is kind of confusing because all this time we've bunched it in with depression, anxiety, mental health, and it's never had really been spoke about. So for now to be a whole different topic on its own, which then suggests, oh, it's this and not mental health aspect even though it links in is just kind of really it's changed mindsets because mental health was a stigma on its own and it still is to this day but with loneliness now coming out what are we meant to think about it how are we meant to think about it are we meant to think about it on its own or in connection with mental health in connection with something entirely different so the work that is going on is really beneficial for it to come out and more ways to explain it, to get it down to the T of what it actually is and if it stands on its own. Absolutely. That's really interesting, Kerry. Thank you. I've got um, a bit of a follow up, if that's all right as well. Do you think that the expectations that young people perhaps hold about their social lives affect feelings of loneliness? Yeah, so even with the current situation, we expected our social life from a certain age to be this outgoing, going out with mates, having all this until we get to after university and then you've got to settle down. So that was expectation from you from all your life because it had to be a certain way, it had to be set. So even with with in lockdown now and people still in lockdown, social lives are non-existent and that is what thrives some people to not, experience loneliness because they use that as the coping mechanism so now everything's shut down the whole world's turned upside down so now I don't see it as they've got a social life they're not going to see it as a social life which then Fahana mentioned about mindset and that's going to put them in the mindset of loneliness which they're not going to experience it as loneliness they're going to just feel it's like isolation no social life it's just locked down which then can cause to bigger problems in the long run which then will help make them depressed anxiety fantastic thank you that was really interesting um, to hear from the perspective just in terms of um kind of social media as well obviously you know the, the digital platforms are potentially things that you know young people have still had plenty of access to what do you feel Kerry? i mean tim was speaking earlier about kind of the idea of the technology kind of being complementary and it working together what do you see as as the potential big positives, I guess, of, of social media and technological um, kind of tools that could help in this space and what might be potentially the dangers or the things that you might worry about given kind of your experience with social media? So I'll go for the positives first. So the positives being there's more 
options to go to stuff because everything was bunched in London and all over the South and then North people can't get there. So for Zoom calls, different collectives to be in, different, I'm going to say social media posts, to be able to do that from the comfort of your own home is just positive and it gets people to do stuff that they've never done before. Confidence, it gives them skills. But I take it more as a negative because that social interaction is not there. And that is what I feel like it helps people because we're not sat in a room now having a meeting, which is a different type of situation. You've got a different mindset in a meeting and you've got that face-to-face contact, which we've not had face-to-face contact with for a while. So that is kind of compensating for the interaction that you need to be able to strive that I feel like you need to be able to strive because you need that face-to-face. That's really interesting. Thank you, Kerry. Um, yeah, before before we move on to an audience question that's come through, would either of you like to kind of elaborate or build on anything that, that Kerry mentioned there? Um, I, I, I'm, I think we need at this particular stage to actually be researching some of the impacts of COVID um, around loneliness. And I think that we are missing golden opportunities at the moment. Um, I talked about measuring loneliness, and I think we need to do that and maybe in relation to just self-rated health or something like that, giving a very quick, though dirty, indication about what's happening. Um, I, I think you also have to be um, aware of some of the research which came out of America about children and screen time. And, you know, um, I think it's Tweagle or Tweagley, um, and a lot of her work has now been rubbished, and I, I think that's probably a good thing. There's some very strong research being done by um, people at Cambridge and also at Oxford. The Oxford Diary Project was really fundamentally interesting in terms of what was the real motive and driver. And I think my problem was, um, you know, I, I'm, though I run a technology charity, I'm not that technology friendly. I'm, I'm severely dyslexic. I hate anything but Zoom and talking to people. And I can find loads of problems with the damn stuff because it frustrates me daily. However, um, you know, what I will say about, about what it's doing, it, it gives, gives links. But if we start putting red herrings around um, you know, early development mental health issues with children and digital connection. I think that's really, really difficult because we we don't start to solve the problems. And a lot of research is now pointing away from um, technology being a problem for children, actually it could be a real solution. Um, so I think there's a need for balance, wasn't, wasn't it? Yep. Um, agreed on the balance and I'll just follow up on I agree that it's an important time for us to kind of collect data in a not not uh, sneaky way but sort of openly conduct meaningful research because we are in this we have means to reach people and we can collect information there are a few studies that are quite helpful that are worth looking at um, you know Daisy Fancourt uh, from UCL and, and other colleagues are doing a sort of uh, UCL social study for COVID-19 that I think has sort of 60,000 plus people, and I, I'm not personally involved in it, but I know from what I've seen of what's coming out of it, it does look like it's the same sorts, same groups of people who we've already 
considered were more likely to be lonely are hugely are much more affected. Um, so it's sort of highlighted. And, and I think people that came out were, yes, young adults. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of disruption to education, future earnings, also worrying about health and, and, and you know, the wider uh, setting that you're growing up in. Um, so those, that, that study is probably one that's worth looking at. And there are some other sort of, kind of coming out with sort of early sort of cross-sectional type numbers of who's identifying as lonely. And they're simple. I think they're often, it's a balance between how detailed a questionnaire you ask people in a stressful time and, and how much information you get. Um, so I think, but there are indications that the loneliness has gone up and certainly it's, it, it, it's, it looks like it's similar people to who we identified before as being more likely to experience loneliness and they're being increased, they're, they're being even more affected um, or impacted upon as far as that self-report um, from them. And I think they are, you mentioned sort of self-rated health, they do have a sort of, it's called the GHQ12, but a sort of health questionnaire is in there. So there's probably work to be done to understand that information, but, but hopefully there are some uh, areas that's been collected, but there's lots that could be done better. And the other thing I'll just follow up on, um, so I agree very much with Kerry and she made a, I think a really important point that in terms of tech, that its role, I think very much is to enhance social connections. And I think it could do that brilliantly if it's done in a safe way, but not to replace your connection with other people. So as you say, you still need to one-to-one to, to, to -one meet with human beings. Uh, and that has, I can't explain exactly scientifically how it has its impact, but it does seem to do something that's over and above, you know, because we've all been having these Zoom chats, but then when, when there was a little bit of easing of lockdown and you could finally meet another child in the playground or whatever, that there was this sense of goodness. Um, so there's this something that we still were missing. So I think very much enhancing, but not replacing. Um, and I agree that with young children, I don't think we should turn away from technology at all. For example, again, I'm, I'm just giving my example with Ketka, it's screen free, so it's audio content. So it's just thinking maybe a bit innovatively, but it doesn't have to require somebody passively staring at a screen or watching um, visual content, but actually just listening could be another way of doing it or thinking you know, about using their bodies. But there's so much technology can do that someone like me can't even think of. But, but working with people who do work in that field will help us get those more innovative answers. That's fantastic, thank you. Um, we'll move on to a question now from one of our attendees who has asked, what is the difference between isolation and loneliness? Um, I'll open that up to, to you all, if that's okay. If anyone would like to, to yeah, take to Start and be interrupted when I get it wrong. Um, so I think it's a, it's a fundamental question and probably uh, we should have started maybe with some sort of a definition of what we mean, because I guess if, if we're all talking about different things, it, it, it ends up being a less meaningful discussion. So thank you very much for whoever brought that up. Um, so for, for, for me and when we look at loneliness, and I think generally what we're talking about, uh, there are lots of definitions out there. One that I find helpful is that it's a perceived mismatch between the level of social connectedness that a person wants and what they have. And so the crucial things in that are that it's perceived. So it's what you perceive it to be. So I can't come in and tell you you're lonely because it's how you perceive it. Uh, you may live alone and enjoy being on your own for periods of time. That doesn't mean you're lonely. Uh, and same time, someone could be surrounded by friends, happily, seemingly happily married or whatever, you know, look like they are on the surface, socially connected and full of people in, in, their, in their sort of environment and yet feel lonely. So it's about how you perceive that, that, that sense of connection and that mismatch between what you want and what you have. Whereas isolation, as I see it, and the two things are related, is much more about whether you are physically isolated from others. Um, and I may be able to say, just by looking, at, you are very isolated because you physically 
can't get out or, or you don't have connections or et cetera, et cetera. So they're not exactly the same thing at all. They are related, however. Do you think there are any problems with regards to, to the language? I mean, if I was feeling a little bit lonely, for instance, I might well say I'm feeling isolated, you know, and, and, and the interchangeability of the terms, I guess, in, in common usage and language um, yeah. the, with that. Yeah, I think um, probably so I day to day think of it more in terms of, I suppose, in terms of research when we're asking people if they're lonely. Uh, Tim, you mentioned measuring loneliness. It's, it's very important that we get a sense that the things that we ask get at the thing that we're trying to understand. So, for example, if I use a questionnaire that is very much just a physical count of how many people you met that day, that, and I then do a study and say, well, I studied loneliness and this is what I found, then, as you say, they may well have answered those questions, but whether they were lonely or not wasn't what I asked them. So I think it's really, really important that we try to get to as good an estimation, because it's always going to be a bit of an estimation. You, you know, the ideal would be that you sit with each of those people and really go through their answer and understand what they're doing, but that's it's a compromise. And that's why I think in terms of research, again, I come back to that, it needs to be a mix of those in-depth, more qualitative explorations where you can tease apart specific experiences combined with bigger studies where you can look on a much more population level of sort of statistically, this is more likely. And I think you need both of those things to better understand the experience in people, especially because one size, when it comes to interventions, is not going to fit everyone. So, um, yeah, but I think day to day, if you're talking to somebody and you're worried about what they mean and what you mean, the best thing is to just ask, so how, how do you mean? Or, you know, what, what does that mean? Or as in, is it because you can't get out or is it? And then I think if you open up the conversation, you can get to what, what the person means, regardless of the word. I think isolation has become synonymous. Um, it, it's something I split away from our work a long time ago, because if you think I've got to judge applications to help people in terms of giving out support, um, I came very aware that people who are in big families were actually quite lonely. And transversely, as I saw people who are living in you know, Scottish troughs not being lonely at all. Um, I think um, something's just happened to my story. I think that's a very quick way of saying, saying it doesn't necessarily have all the, all the impact. And uh, you, I think people have, you know, the, la the last lot of people to do this was a group called Nestor on behalf of DCMS said, they, we can't measure loneliness. Well, DCMS had just spent five years with um, the National Statistics Office, was quite a few of us working with them, coming up with a loneliness scale, which was UCL, which was then refined and also um, built into children within, within that loneliness scale. And we got the health scale. And so I use the health scale because I don't want, I want an independent and I want to see whether there's a link between loneliness and health. And I can say, if you reduce loneliness, people's self-rated health goes up very clearly. And if you in increase loneliness, the self-rated health goes down. Um, so I think it's, it's really important, but just saying, well, we can measure isolation because it's about the amount of relationships you've got, or it's about the way you're living, or how big your house is, or how much access you've got to green space. Well, maybe, but it doesn't necessarily give you what you need. 
Well, yeah. So they're two. So they're different. Different sides. Yeah, they're completely yeah. different yeah. things. But they will. But 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 they are statistics. So if you are isolated, you, it's not that it, it will place you more like at, at greater likelihood. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. But I totally agree that if you are answering the question about one or the other, you need to be measuring the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and we look. We need to look at the relationship, and we need to be aware. But I think it's because historically it's been one of those easy and understandable triggers. Yeah. Like, why do we concentrate on older people? Because more of their friends are dying, more of the families yeah. are dying, yeah. and therefore we understand it and we grasp it more easily. Therefore, yeah. they are more likely. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating, thank you. We've got another question in from the audience, um, which I would like to to give you each the opportunity to reply to. I think we'll start with Kerry, if that's okay. Um, and this is a biggie, so apologies in advance. And please, just you know, there's no right or wrong answer. Um, and drawing on your personal experience is absolutely um, great, and it's what we're looking for. But what do you think an ideal future without loneliness would look like? What ideal opportunities and structures would be in place so if the world didn't have loneliness what would change i think there'd be a lot of change to be honest because people experience loneliness without experiencing it themselves without even knowing so for an ideal future with that there'd be more people out of the houses doing stuff taking opportunities doing things they'd never think of and actually connecting with people, meeting new people, being out there, putting themselves out there, which would then benefit their health, benefit their mood, benefit their life altogether. And then the opportunities, I think they'd be endless. So you'd have different organisations promoting opportunities for people to get out there and then for them to actually try stuff, do stuff, travel and It'd just be endless, and I wish there'd be a place where we could get rid of loneliness because the older generation, the younger generation, both would benefit. But it's just a hard question and a big question to try and manage altogether. Absolutely, Kerry, and you've done a fantastic job there. Thank you very much for that. Um, Vahani, you've had a little bit more time to think than I gave Kerry now. Would you like to um, provide us with an answer? Well, I, think, I think she covered it pretty well. Um, well done, Gary. Uh, what do you think? So I guess if it, it's, it's a complex one. If you just took out the loneliness, you'd still have all the other stuff like poverty and, and various other things that would, that would still be in the way. Um, but obviously in this ideal world, all those things, if they were all sorted too, when we were also not lonely, then of course, there are, there, as Kerry said, there would be presumably massive implications in terms of people's health, people's quality of life and levels of happiness and, and well-being overall so if we if we but I, in my ideal world it wouldn't just be the loneliness that that would be tackled um but it would be those other broader things that would that also determine kind of how we get on in our health um and also if we didn't get rid of loneliness altogether a world where people who were lonely knew knew where to reach out and that there were people actively um offering them uh, support that would be that would be a pretty good world uh, and in terms of structures and opportunities i think um as kerry said you know people would be presumably in a better place to go and access green space that hopefully they would have and, and go and form those connections um, and and get more involved in their communities and politically or however they wanted to and and, and things like self-esteem and, and other aspects of, of how you how you see yourself are all we've seen associated with loneliness so hopefully those things would also improve but obviously it's a very artificial scenario and the reality to that is that that yeah it's a hard one to answer 
Absolutely. And uh, Tim? Um, I think those are two very brilliant answers. Um, maybe looking at from, um, I, I don't see myself running a loneliness charity. I run a happiness charity. And um, that's what I try to bring and connectivity to people. I think to reach that stage, uh, and I've always talked about loneliness being a a fairly natural driver to help us bond and be happy together. Um, so I don't think it's ever going to go, but I think to get to the right stage for everybody, it is about people being less, being more selfless and reaching out to people and recognizing when somebody needs a, somebody to go over to them in a room and say, hi, I'm Tim, um, this is what I do. What about you? Tell me about yourself. And I think that's very important. That's brilliant. Thank you. Um, and what a wonderful place it sounds like. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to be cheeky and I have one of my own questions now. We've got another excellent question that's coming from the audience, but if it's okay, I will ask the one that I've got first. Um, and again, this is a question for all of you. Are there any existing initiatives which take more of an intergenerational approach to, to combating loneliness? So I realise that the, the focus of this discussion is particularly around, around youth, but um, it's doubtless important that it is joined up and a more holistic approach is taken. So if you can um, yeah, speak a little bit about the intergenerational approach is taken or if there are some good examples of initiatives already, that'd be fantastic. Uh, Tim, shall we start with you and then do Fahana? And Kerry, don't worry, you're on there. <laughs> you don't have to think straight off the bat with this one. Um, okay, uh, I, I've got two sort of sections on intergenerational work. Uh, one is about computer training online, which um, has been forced on lots of people and hasn't really worked. And um, intergenerational approaches came very trendy to actually fund and I, you know, there the may be problems actually in delivering training programs in those routes and peer support groups are seen to be far more successful. Leaving that aside, I work with loads of different projects and one of the, the best ones I've funded over the COVID situation has been care homes. Um, and these care homes have been where the situation in Norfolk and young people before COVID have been going in, seeing people going through um, different projects with the residents and getting to know each other. Um, and it wasn't necessarily about intergenerational, it was more, more was, the focus was very much on loneliness for both sides. And it was very successful. When COVID then hit, what they needed was a way to produce CDs, a way to produce, um, you know, some sort of communication. So we, we gave them tablets, we gave them CD players, radios, disc writers, that sort of thing. And that project still carries on um, and is mutually supportive and is working very well. And I think by something which is focused upon a relationship, it's far more realistic. And as long as it's not a sort of proxy befriending scheme, they actually seem to work. Fantastic, thank you. And uh, Fahana? Yeah, um, I think Tim's probably got more practical experience of working with that sort of intervention. It's not something I've 
personally uh, worked with very much. So my knowledge comes more from reading about it and, and hearing about what other people are doing. So I know that it's it's an area that not just in the UK, but in other, in other parts of Europe, I'm, I'm aware people are trying, sort of considering things like cohabiting or, you know, or at one end sort of that more longer term sort of set intergenerational setup um, to, I think, to more shorter term sort of interactions. Um, I guess in terms of evidence of, of what works and how, I, I don't know that we've done any kind of big trials or anything like that, but at the moment I think there is a need to learn uh, and try and embed some sort of assessment of outcome into the many good things that community groups or organizations are doing so that we don't lose learning opportunities from people who are already doing good work in the area. Um, I think there is a need to sort of think probably with, with, with any approach, I think probably as Tim said, is to think how it would be sustained. So I think there can be a lot of excitement, let's fund something, let's do it, and then it goes. Um, how can it be sustained? How can it be embedded into the community that it, it exists in? So we can't sort of centrally come up with an intergenerational idea and then expect it to be rolled out across the UK when there may be very different cultural contexts or groups of people who, who are interacting. Um, and one thing that I remember reading about is, um, is that one mustn't forget the potential for things to go wrong, so potentially harm. So I think there was some sense that in some situations, the interaction, bringing young people and, and old people together, working together to some, towards something can sometimes have an effect of sort of almost enhancing stereotypes. So, so that it may, there is a risk sometimes if you're not actively thinking about it or no one's really leading, um, that people can maybe, maybe younger people will further hold on to their sort of stereotype views about how older people interact if, if it's not done thoughtfully and, and maybe older people may think gosh these guys are are not are not contributing in a useful way or are far too loud or you know that's very that's a very simple way of looking at it those aren't actual quotes but those are the sorts of things i think it's worth keeping in mind so it's about sort of doing it keeping those things in mind and then hopefully it works well and lasts in a, in a community fantastic and uh, kerry I've not heard much about this, only when you search it yourself online. But mainly, like, I don't know if people have seen the programme where they take the little kids into care homes and you see the faces just light up and that is just a big part of the intergeneration. What the, you can see nowadays where they are mixing with the elderly, mixing to stop that loneliness. And that is just the main one for me that I have seen. But with everything COVID, every situation coming up now, I think you're gonna see more of an approach with the intergeneration to combat loneliness because then it will work both ways on both ends. Thank you, Kerry. And that's really interesting and a really nice segue actually into the question that was posed by one of the audience members. Um, we'll start off with you if that's okay. Um, what do the panellists think about how the media has covered issues of loneliness during COVID-19? Has it helped to wear, raise awareness? My personal view on that is they've not really covered it. They've said about it, said that it's there, said that it's happened, but they've never really dug into it and found out about it. They've said, oh, yeah, young people, older people, everyone's lonely because we're in lockdown but really they don't seem to understand it themselves. They give it a broad overview and just bypass it, which was the reason for people to start talking about it in the first place. And the awareness of it, I think now everyone's talking about it because we don't know what it is. The awareness is coming there, but with the media, there's just nothing. Really interesting, Kerry. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, something from a personal perspective is that I've seen a lot of 
almost the opposite happening in the media where yes loneliness has been a thing but a constant kind of good news stories about all of these initiatives that are out there to to combat loneliness as well um tim can we go to you next what are your thoughts um i'm i've i'm worried about the noise um for the people who i know have been lonely and isolated i'm going to use isolated again um before COVID and I think it's skewed things and I think part of that has been the way that government has falsely claimed the funding um, the charitable sector who, which has been in a huge difficulty uh, because it hasn't been independently funded it's only had six months reserved and it um, government sees it answer and they wanted to control that and a lot of the funding has been promised towards loanless projects um, but there isn't enough to go around. And I think that that has skewed the way the thinking about tackling it and the, the way that they have um, segregated certain, certain groups out, I think is also not helpful. Um, and the way they then brought in organisations who've just got no idea what they're doing. So loneliness has come very medicalised social prescribing has come in as an answer to that but the voluntary sector has done it for ages and actually worked um you know and the the great dangers about what's happening and i think the media i think Kerry's absolutely right the media really don't know how to tackle the issue and i think if we're really honest as me and farana has said at the beginning our understanding of loneliness and our journey up to that understanding is in its infancy. And we've got to be honest about, you know, we're, we're seeing co correlation, not causation. Um, and people are blowing it out of proportion. And I think that that could be very, very dangerous. Yeah, I, I think it's always about a, a balance, isn't it? Uh, I, and I, I mean, I agree with everything you've said so far. Uh, there, I think there was a time when people probably before COVID were talking about a loneliness epidemic or, you know, this was all the first time it had ever happened. And I don't, I, I, anyway, we haven't been measuring it in the same way for a long period of time. So I don't think we even had the ability to say whether or not it was an epidemic. And I don't think there's any evidence that that's happening. At the same time, it's, you know, it's not the case that we don't need to deal with it. Um, but, but what works for whom? I think we just don't quite know yet. So that does make me a bit nervous about massive rollouts uh, across the country of things that we don't necessarily know will work for the most marginalised groups of people. So, for example, I'm thinking of uh, people who obviously people that I tend to see more of and people who our group at UCL um, work with in terms of research, more people with really quite severe mental health problems, for example, who, who already long before COVID uh, were much more likely to be very physically isolated or and or uh, identify as, as feeling lonely and, and I do worry that um, and as you say that the kind of the bright stories of how this community's got together those initiatives often very much still leave behind or leave out not intentionally necessarily but those marginalized groups of people often will get left out and so may become even more marginalized in the conversation so I think we've got to be very proactive in not looking at just the, the sort of it's not light loneliness but the sort of like oh i i did this and then now i feel much better and it's it's not it's not dealing with a much deeper issue and actually the people who may be most likely to suffer chronic health problems from it or, or whatever um fall out of society in terms of work and if, if that's how the government wants to look at it cost society the most over time whether that's because they're in hospital or because they're, they're not able to work or whatever so i think we need to not 
just look at it as a sort of broad light issue that we've all been a bit lonely because I don't think we have all been a bit lonely. Um, we've all had massive disruption to varying degrees, but but that shouldn't take away from, from the issue of persistent loneliness as a problem for, for particularly marginalised groups of people. Some really fascinating um, answers there. Thank you very much. We've got one last question from our audience before we wrap up. So, um, Tim, if I could start with you on this one. Do you ever feel loneliness stems from a misconception that we are reliant on others? Do you think schools reinforce the idea that we can be stronger, more self-reliant individuals? Um, I think uh, I, I've answered this question through and through in a slightly different way, which is I have said, loneliness is a natural mode of wisdom, is like a flight and flight, fight response, those, those things. Um, there's a reason for it being there, and it's about being social animals. Um, I think if we look at what's happening to our society, etc., we start to see the reasons why loneliness is coming more apparent. Um, so I don't think this is about teaching self-reliance in schools. I think this is about teaching children strategies and techniques when they first come up against loneliness, what they can do about it, but also what they can do about it for each other too. Um, and that, that sort of bonding and community is very, very important. Um, and I think I'm going to leave it there. I think that's what you do about it. I think that's why I don't think it is that. Thank you. Um, Kerry, Fahana, is there anything either of you would like to add? Kerry, you go ahead. Sorry, you just unmute. I would just say, um, for me, it's not lying about it because they don't tell you that loneliness is something common, something that can happen. They just bypass it. They don't seem to say that loneliness is a thing. Schools don't teach you about it, don't tell you that it's okay to feel it. It's just, oh, this doesn't happen. It's just like rainbows and sunshine outside of the walls. So for them to actually say to schools, yes, we need to teach people about this. We need to say this happens. This is real life instead of letting them figure it out for themselves. Because when people figure it out for themselves, they majorly get it wrong sometimes because they're looking in the wrong places. Yeah, I would just add briefly that I think I wouldn't want little children at school to be learning that they're lonely because of them, problems with them and how they manage social situations and that they have bad social skills. I think we you can have a much more constructive discussion about, you know, this will this is a great idea for how you might interact. And if you're an introverted person, that's fine. You don't need to have 50,000 friends. This is this is some way that you may feel good. But, but look at the other issues like self-esteem, like what's going on at home and, and those other drivers and not... I don't, I don't think we should have too much of a focus on the individual without um, also educating them about the wider societal sort of issues that, that, that affect societies and affect communities and how we, how we all live together. And, and the idea of helping other people. So it's not just about you being lonely, but if you spot someone in the playground who's on their own and looks a bit down, to totally normalize having a, a bench or somewhere where you go and, and then you know, perhaps a teacher can sit there and model that they feel a bit down and lonely sometimes and then invite people to come and be kind. Um, and that would be a great, great message for kids to take away, for all of us to take away. 
Yeah, fantastic. And yeah, I'm not by no means an expert when it comes to, to youth and loneliness, but the idea of um, stepping always aware away where possible from this this discourse, if you like, of individual deficit or a problem with an individual rather than recognizing the wider, you know, structural, social conditions um, that, that lead to these feelings and actually coming up with, you know, programs and initiatives which which embrace those things. Um, and like Kerry said, raise awareness that actually this is, you know, a normal part of being a human as a social animal um, and build those structures around it. Really, really important too. Um, I'm aware that we've only got about three minutes left before we are due to wrap up. So just before I do my closing spiel, is there anything kind of in terms of final thoughts and remarks that, that any of you would like to make? Just thank you very much for highlighting the issue and for giving me the chance to, to chat with Kerry and, and Tim and, and hear from, from panellists. It's really exciting. We've been exploring the issue of loneliness and, and, and uh, long, long, long before COVID for years. So if it brings more attention to it and allows us to do the things we're trying to do better, uh, then that's a very good thing. So thanks very much for, for doing that. And very happy for people to try and connect with sort of UCL loneliness and, and things like that if you want to tweet um or email then then do that it's all kind of online if you google it so we're we love hearing from everyone thank you thank you very much alex and and thank you for both of you uh it's been lovely to actually have a, a chat about this and so much synergy as well um i just kind of feel that you know all, all the rubbish which flows around there's actually people who understand there is a way through that and spotting those similar patterns and progress is really important to me. Thank you, Tim. I'd just like to say thank you for having me because I've not seen anyone actually talk about youth loneliness at the moment. So to say people have spoke about mental health and all these isolation and everything, but for youth loneliness to now come into topic at the same time that UK youth is now making the guide, it's really give me an insight for now to go back there and say, right, this is what we think. This is other people's views. So to have this insight, what's having this discussion is really beneficial. Fantastic. And yeah, thank you very much um, to the three of you for joining us today. Like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times during the current pandemic. If you have enjoyed today's event and would like to support our work, we'd be grateful if you consider making a small donation. You can do so online via our Just Giving page and we'll put up the link immediately after this webinar. If you would like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page of our website or some, simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac. UK. Our next webinar is going to take place on the 2nd of December, where we will be discussing the important role of the arts in building social cohesion and how the arts, music and culture sector can recover from the damaging effects of COVID-19. You can find out more about the work of Cumberland Lodge on our website, which is www.cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Thank you once again to our brilliant guests, Bahana Kerry and Tim, and until next time, goodbye.